Chapter Two of *The Tiger of Mysore* by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. *The Tiger of Mysore* by G. A. Henty. Chapter Two: A Brush with Privateers. Dick was surprised when, on descending to the deck. He found that what seemed to him a by no means very difficult feat had attracted general attention. Not only did half a dozen of the sailors pat him on the back with exclamations expressive of their surprise and admiration, but the other midshipmen spoke quite as warmly, the eldest saying, "'I could have got up the rope, Holland, but I could not have gone up straight as you did, without stopping for a bit to take breath. You don't look so very strong, either.' "'Oh, I think that it's a knack more than strength,' Dick replied. "'I have done a lot of practice at climbing.' for I have always wanted to be strong, and I heard that there was no better exercise. When presently Dick went off aft to the quarter-deck, Captain Barstow said to him, "'You have astonished us all, lad. I could hardly believe my eyes when I saw you going up that rope. I first caught sight of you when you had climbed but twenty feet, but, and wondered how far you would get. At that pace, I would have wagered a hundred guineas to one that you would not have kept it up to the top.' "'Well, lad, whatever profession you take up, too, it's uh, certain that you'll be a good sailor spoiled.' They had been out three weeks now, but had made slow progress, for the winds had been light and mostly from the southwest. "'This is very dull work,' the doctor said to Dick one day at dinner. "'Here we are, three weeks out, and still hardly beyond the channel. There is one consolation. It's not the fault of the ship. She's been doing well under the circumstances. But the fates have been against her thus far.' I have no doubt that there are a score of ships still lying in the downs that were there when we passed, and, tedious as it has been beating down the channel with scarce wind enough most of the time to keep our sails full, it would have been worse lying there all the time. Still, we've gained a good bit on them, sir. If the wind were to change round, say, to the northeast, and they brought it along with them, they would soon make up for lost time, for it would not take them three days to run here. However, we shall begin to do better soon. I heard the captain say that he should change his course to-morrow. We're somewhere off Cork, and when he makes a few miles more westing he'll bear away south. If we'd had a favourable wind we should have taken our departure from the start, but with it in this quarter we're obliged to make more westing, before we lay our head on her course, or we should risk getting in too close to the French coast, and their privateers are as thick as peas there. But we should not be afraid of a French privateer, doctor. Well, not altogether afraid of one, but they are very often going in couples, and sometimes three of them will work together. I don't think one privateer alone would venture to attack us, though she might harass us a bit and keep up a distant fire, in hopes that another might hear it and bear down to her aid, but it's always as well to keep free of them if one can. You see, an unlucky shot would knock one of our sticks out of us, which would mean delay and trouble if no worse. We had a strong brush with two of them on the last voyage, but we beat them off. We were stronger than we are now, for we had two hundred troops on board, and should have astonished them if they had come close enough to try boarding. In fact, we were slackening our fire to tempt them to do so, when they made out that a large craft coming up astern was an English frigate, and sheered off. I don't know what the end of it was, but I rather fancy they were taken. The frigate followed them gaining fast, and later on we could hear guns in the distance. You did not join in the chase, then, Doctor? Oh, no, our business is not fighting. If we are attacked, of course, we defend ourselves, or we don't go a foot out of our way, if we can help it. Three weeks at sea had done wonders for Mrs. Holland. Now that she was fairly embarked upon her quest, the expression of anxiety gradually died out. The sea air braced up her nerves, and, what was of still greater benefit to her, she was able to sleep soundly and dreamlessly, 
a thing she had not done for years. Dick was delighted at the change in her. "'You look quite a different woman, mother,' he said. "'I don't think your friends at Shadwell would know you if they were to see you now.' "'Oh, I feel a different woman, Dick. I have not felt so well and so bright since your father sailed on his last voyage. I am more convinced than ever that we shall succeed. I have been trying very hard for years to be hopeful, but now I feel so without trying. Of course it was uh, partly this lovely weather and, and the sea air, and sleeping so well, and partly because everyone is so kind and, and, and so pleasant.' As soon as the Madras had been headed for the south, she began to make better way. The wind freshened somewhat, but continued in the same quarter. Grumbling ceased over the bad luck they were having, and hopeful anticipations that after all they would make a quick passage were freely indulged in. On the fourth day, after changing her course, she was off the coast of Spain, which was but a hundred fifty miles distant. At noon that day the wind dropped suddenly, and an hour later it was a dead calm. "'We're going to have a change, Dick,' said the doctor, said, as he stopped by the lad who was leaning against the bulwark watching a flock of seagulls that were following a shoal of fish, dashing down among them with loud cries, and too intent upon their work to notice the ship, lying motionless a hundred yards away. "'What sort of change, doctor?' "'Most likely a strong blow, though from what quarter it's too soon to say. However, we have no reason to grumble. After nearly a month of light winds, we must expect a turn of bad weather. I hope it will come from the north. That will take us down to the latitude of Madeira.' and beyond that we may calculate upon another spell of fine weather until we cross the line. As the afternoon wore on, the weather became more dull. There were no clouds in the sky, but the deep blue was dimmed by a sort of haze. Presently, after a talk between the captain and the first officer, the latter gave the order, "'All hands take in sail!' The order had been expected, and the men at once swarmed up the rigging. In a quarter of an hour all the upper sails were furled. The light spars were then sent down to the deck, "'You may as well get the top-gallant sails off her, too, Mr. Green,' the captain said to the first officer. "'It's as well to be prepared for the worst. It's sure to blow pretty hard when the change comes.' The top-gallant sails, or to-gallant sails, were got in, and when the courses had been brailed up and secured, the hands were called down. Presently the captain, after going to his cabin, rejoined Mr. Green. "'The glass has gone up again,' Dick heard him say. "'It looks as if it were coming from the north, sir.' "'Yes, yes, with, with some east in it.' It would not come from a better quarter. He turned and gazed steadily in that direction. Yes, there is dark water over there. So there is, sir. That's all right. I don't mind how hard it blows, so that it does but come on gradually. Yes, I agree with you. These hurricane bursts, when one is becalmed, are always dangerous, even when one is under bare poles. Gradually the dark line on the horizon crept up toward the ship. As it reached her, the sails bellied out, and she began to move through the water. The wind increased in strength rapidly, and in half an hour she was running south at ten or eleven knots an hour. The thermometer had fallen many degrees, and as the sun set the passengers were glad to go below for shelter. Before going to bed Dick went up on deck for a few minutes. The topsails had been reefed down, but the madras was rushing through the water at a high rate of speed. The sea was getting up, and the waves were crested with foam. Above the stars were shining brilliantly. "'Well, lad, this is a change, is it not?' the captain said, as he came along in a pea-jacket. "'We seem to be going splendidly, captain.' "'Yes, we are walking along grandly and making up for lost time. "'It is blowing hard, sir. "'It'll blow a good deal harder before morning, lad. "'But I do not think it'll be anything very severe. "'Things won't be so comfortable downstairs for the next day or two, "'but that's likely to be the worst of it.' The motion of the ship kept Dick awake for some time, but wedging himself tightly in his berth he presently fell off to sleep 
and did not wake again until morning. His two cabin-mates were suffering terribly from seasickness, but he felt perfectly well, although it took him a long time to dress, so great was the motion of the ship. On making his way on deck he found that overhead the sky was blue and bright and the sun shining brilliantly. The wind was blowing much harder than on the previous evening, and a heavy sea was running, but as the sun sparkled on the white crests of the waves the scene was far less awe-inspiring than it had been when he looked out before retiring to his berth. The ship, under closely reefed main and fore topsails, was tearing through the water at a high rate of speed, throwing clouds of spray from her bows, and occasionally taking a wave over them that sent a deluge of water along the deck. "'What do you think of this, lad?' Mr. Rawlinson, who was in charge of the watch, asked him, as, after watching his opportunity, he made a rush to the side and caught a firm hold of a shroud. "'It is splendid, sir,' he said. "'Has she been going like this all night?' The officer nodded. "'How long do you think it'll last, sir?' Two or three days. "'Will it be any worse, sir?' "'Not likely to be. It's taken us a long rally, and it's doing us good in more ways than one. Look there!' And as they rose on a wave he pointed across the water behind Dick. The lad turned, and saw a brig running parallel to their course half a mile distant. "'Whatever, sir?' "'That's a French privateer, unless I'm greatly mistaken.' "'But she has the British ensign flying, sir. <laughs> but that goes for nothing. She may possibly be a trader on her way down to the Guinea coast, but by the cut of her sails and the look of her hull I have no doubt that she's a Frenchman. We are passing her, sir. Oh, yes. In a gale and a heavy sea, wait tells, and we shall soon leave her astern. But in fine weather I expect she could sail round and round us. If the French could fight their ships as well as they could build them, we should not be in it with them. Why don't we fire at her, Mr. Rawlinson?' The officer laughed. "'How are you going to work your guns with the ship rolling like this? No, lad, we're like two muzzled dogs at present. We can do nothing but watch each other. I'm sorry to say that I don't think the fellow is alone. Two or three times I fancied I caught a glimpse of a sail on our starboard quarter. I could not swear to it, but I don't think I was mistaken. And I called the captain's attention that way, just before he went down ten minutes ago, and he thought he saw it too. However, as there was nothing to be done, he went down for a cork.' He had not left the deck since noon yesterday. But if she's no bigger than the other, I suppose we shall leave her behind, too, Mr. Rawlinson. Aye, lad, we shall leave them both behind presently, but if they're what I think, we're likely to hear more of them later on. They would not be so far offshore as this unless they were on the lookout for an Indianman, which, of course, keep much further out than ships bound up the med. And having once spotted us, they'll follow us like hounds on a deer's trail. However, I think they're likely to find that they have caught a tartar when they come up to us. Ah, here's the doctor. Well, doctor, what's the report below? Only the usual number of casualties, a sprained wrist, a few contusions, three or four cases of hysterics. Is mother all right, doctor? Dick asked. As I have heard nothing of her, I have no doubt she is. I am quite sure that she will not trouble me with hysterics. Women who have had real trouble to bear, Dick, can be trusted to keep their nerves steady in a gale. Oh, I suppose you call this a gale, doctor? "'Certainly. It's a stiff northeasterly gale, and if we were facing it instead of running before it, you would not want to ask the question. "'That's a suspicious-looking craft, Rawlinson,' he broke off, catching sight of the brig now on their port quarter. "'Yes, she's a privateer, I have no doubt, and unless I am mistaken, she has a consort somewhere out there to starboard. "'However, we need not trouble about them. Travelling as we are, we're going two knots an hour faster than the brig.' "'So much the better,' the doctor said. "'We can laugh at any of these fellows, but—' When it comes to two of them, I own that I don't care for their company. So the longer this gale holds on, the better. The mate nodded. Well, Dick, the doctor went on, do you feel as if you will be able to eat your breakfast? 
"'Oh, I shall be ready enough for it, Doctor, but I don't see how it will be possible to eat it with the vessel rolling like this. You certainly will not be able to sit down to it. Nothing would stay on the table a minute. There will be no regular breakfast today. You must get the steward to cut you a chunk of cold meat, put it between two slices of bread, and make a sandwich of it. As to tea, ask him to give you a bottle and to pour your tea into that. Then if you wedge yourself into a corner, you'll find that you're able to manage your breakfast quite comfortably, and can amuse yourself watching people trying to balance a cup of tea in their hand. Not more than half a dozen passengers ventured on deck for the next two days, but at the end of that time the force of the wind gradually abated, and on the following morning the Madras put all her sails up to a light but still favourable breeze. Madeira had been passed to Dick's disappointment, but except for a fresh supply of vegetables there was no occasion to put in there, and the captain grudged the loss of a day while so favourable a wind was taking them along. "'Do you think we shall see anything of that brig again, doctor?' Dick asked, as for the first time since the wind sprang up the passengers sat down to a comfortable breakfast. "'There's no saying, Dick, if we gained two knots an hour during the blow, and I don't suppose we gained more than one and a half. They must be a hundred and twenty miles or so astern of us. After all, this is only half a day's run. I think they are pretty sure to follow us for a bit, for they will know that in light winds they travel faster than we do, and if we get becalmed while they still hold the breeze, they'll come up hand over hand. It's likely enough that in another three days or so we may get a sight of them behind us.' This was evidently the captain's opinion also, for during the day the guns were overhauled and their carriages examined, and the muskets brought up on deck and cleaned. On the following day the men were practised at the guns, and then had pike and cutlass exercise. None of the passengers particularly noticed these proceedings, for Dick had been warned by the captain to say nothing about the brig, and as he was the only passenger on deck at the time, no whisper of the privateers had come to the ears of the others. The party were just going down to lunch on the third day, when a lookout in the main top hailed the deck. "'Sail astern! How does she bear?' "'She's dead astern of us, sir, and I can only make out her upper sails. I should say that there are her royals.' Mr. Green ran up with his telescope slung over his shoulder. "'I cannot make much out of her, sir,' he shouted to the captain. "'She may be anything. She must be nearly thirty miles astern. I think with Pearson that it is her royals we see. Take a look round, Mr. Green.' The mate did so, and presently called down. "'I can make out something else away on the starboard quarter, but so far astern that I can scarce swear to her. Still it can be nothing but a sail.' "'Thank you, Mr. Green. I dare say that we shall know more about her later on.' When the captain joined the passengers at table, one of the ladies said, "'You seem interested in that ship astern of us, Captain?' "'Yes, Mrs. Seaforth. One is always interested in a ship when one gets down as far as this.' She may be another Indiaman, and although the Madras has no claim to any great speed in a light breeze like this, one never likes being passed. The explanation was considered as sufficient, and nothing more was said on the subject. By sunset the upper sails of the stranger could be made out from the deck of the Madras. Mr. Green again went up and had a look at her. "'She's coming up fast,' he said, when he rejoined the captain. "'She keeps us so dead in our wake that I can't make out whether she's a brig or a three-master.' but I fancy that she is a brig by the size and cut of her sails. I can see the other craft plainly enough now. She's eight or ten miles west of the other, and has closed in toward her since I made her out before. I have no doubt that she is a large schooner. Well, it's a comfort that they are not a few miles nearer, Mr. Green. There's no chance of their overtaking us before morning, so we shall be able to keep our watches as usual, and shall have time to get ready for a fight, if there is to be one. The sooner the better, sir, so that it is daylight. It's quite certain that they have the legs on us. In the morning, when Dick came up, he found that the wind had quite died away, 
and the sails hung loosely from the yards. Looking astern, he saw two vessels. They were some six miles away and perhaps two miles apart. As they lay without steerage way, they had swung partly round, and he saw that they were a brig and a schooner. The former, he had no doubt, from her lofty masts and general appearance, was the same the Madras had passed six days before. As the passengers came up, they were full of curiosity as to the vessels. "'Of course we know no more, actually, than you do yourselves,' the captain said, as some of them gathered round and questioned him. "'But I may as well tell you frankly that we have very little doubt about there being two French privateers. We passed them during the gale, and had some hopes that we should not see them again, but in the light breeze we have been having during the last few days, they have made up lost ground, and I am afraid that we shall probably have to fight them.' exclamations of alarm broke from some of the ladies who heard his words you need not be alarmed ladies he went on we carry twelve guns you know and i expect that all of them are of heavier metal than theirs the madras is a strongly built ship and will stand a good deal more hammering than those light craft will so that i have no doubt we shall give a good account of ourselves after breakfast the hatches were opened and the gun cases belonging to the passengers brought out scarce one of them but had a rifle and many had in addition a shotgun the day passed without any change in the positions of the vessels, but they still lay becalmed. "'Why don't they get out their boats and tow their vessels up?' Dick asked the doctor. "'Because they would be throwing away their chances if they did so. They know that we cannot get away from them, and we might smash up their boats as soon as they came within range. Besides, their speed and superior handiness give them a pull over us when fighting under sail. They may try to tow up during the night, if they think they are strong enough to take us by boarding but I hardly think they'll do so. The night, however, passed off quietly, but in the morning a light breeze sprang up from the east. The sails were trimmed, and the Madras again began to move through the water. By breakfast time the craft behind had visibly decreased their distance. The meal was a silent one. When it was over, the captain said, "'As soon as those fellows open fire, ladies, I must ask you all to go down into the hold. The sailors have already cleared a space below the water-line large enough for you.' and they will take down some cushions and so on to make you as comfortable as possible under the circumstances. Pray do not be alarmed at any noises you may hear. You will be below the water-line and perfectly safe from their shot. You may be sure that we shall do our best to keep the scoundrels from boarding us, and I will let you know from time to time how matters are going. The unmarried men at once went up on deck. The others lingered for a short time behind, talking to their wives and daughters, and then followed. "'The wind has strengthened a bit, Mr. Green,' the captain said, "'and I fancy we shall get more.' "'I think so, too, Captain. "'Then you may as well get off the upper sails and make us snug. "'Get off everything above the t'gallant. "'Then if the wind increases we shall not want to call the men away from the guns.' "'The crew had, without orders, already mustered at quarters. "'The lashings had been cast off the guns, "'the boatswain had opened the magazines, "'and a pile of shot stood by each gun, "'together with cases of canister and grape-shot for close work. Boarding-pikes and cutlasses were ranged along the bulwarks. The men had thrown aside their jackets, and many of those at the guns were stripped to the waist. Some of them were laughing and talking, and Dick saw by their air of confidence that they had no doubt of their ability to beat off the assault of the privateers. The latter were the first to open the ball. A puff of smoke burst out from the brig's bows, followed almost instantly by one from the schooner. Both shots fell short, and for a quarter of an hour the three vessels kept on their way. "'Ah, we have heavier metal than that,' the captain said cheerfully and I have no doubt we could reach them, but it's not our game to play at long bowls, for it's probable that both of them carry a long pivot gun, and if they were to draw off a bit they could annoy us amazingly, while we could not reach them. Presently the privateers opened fire again. They were now about a mile away, and the same distance from each other. 
Their shot fell close to the Indiamen, and two or three passed through their sails. Still no reply was made. The men at the gun fidgeted and kept casting glances toward the poop in expectation of an order. It came at last, but it was not what they had expected. "'Double shot your guns, men,' the captain said. Scarcely was the order obeyed when the brig, which was now on the port quarter, luffed up a little into the wind and fired a broadside of eight guns. There was a crashing of wood, the madras was hulled in three places, two more holes appeared in her sails, while the other shot passed harmlessly just astern of her. There was an angry growl among the sailors as the schooner bore away a little, and also fired her broadside, except that a man was struck down by a splinter from the bulwarks, no damage was done. "'Bear up a little,' the captain said to the second officer, who was standing by the helmsman. "'I want to edge in a little toward the brig, but not enough for them to notice it. Now, gentlemen,' he went on to the passengers, "'I have no doubt that most of you are good shots, and I want you, after we have fired our broadside, to direct your attention to the brig's helmsman. If you can render it impossible for the men to stand at the wheel, we'll make mincemeat of this fellow in no time. Directly I have fired our port broadside, I'm going to bring her up into the wind on the opposite tack and give him the starboard broadside at close quarters. Don't fire until we've gone about, and then pick off the helmsman if you can. Get ready, men. The brig was now but a little more than a quarter of a mile distant. Aim at the foot of his mainmast, he went on. Let each man fire as he gets the mast in his sight. A moment later the first gun fired, and the whole broadside followed in quick succession. Down with the helm, hard down, sheets and tacks. The men whose duty it was to trim the sails ran to the sheets and braces, the Madras swept up into the wind, and as her sails drew on the other tack, she came along on a course that would take her within a hundred yards of the brig. As she approached, three rifles cracked out on her poop. One of the men at the helm of the brig fell, and as he did so, half a dozen more shots were fired, and as his companion dropped beside him, the brig, deprived of her helm, flew up into the wind. Three men ran aft to the wheel, but the deadly rifles spoke out again. Two of them fell. The third dived under the bulwark for shelter. "'Steady, men,' the captain shouted. "'Fetch a mainmast out of her.' As they swept along under the stern of the brig, each gun of their other broadside poured in its fire in succession, raking the crowded deck from end to end. A moment later the mainmast was seen to sway, and a tremendous cheer broke from the madras as it went over the side, dragging with it the foretopmast with all its gear. "'Down with the helm again,' the captain shouted. "'Bring her head to wind and keep her there.' The first officer sprang forward to see that the order was carried into effect, and a minute later the Indiaman lay with her sails aback at a distance of a hundred yards on the quarter of the brig. "'Grape and canister!' the captain shouted, and broadside after broadside swept the decks of the brig, which, hampered by her wreckage, was lying almost motionless in the water. So terrible was the fire that the privateersmen threw down their axes, with which they were striving to cut away the floating spars, and ran below. "'Double shot your guns, and give her one broadside between wind and water,' the captain ordered. Haul on the sheets and braces, Mr. Green, and get her on course again. The schooner won't trouble us now. That craft had indeed at first luffed up to come to the assistance of a consort, but on seeing the fall of the latter's mast, and that she was incapable of rendering any assistance, had again altered her course, feeling her incapacity to engage so redoubtable an opponent single-handed. Three hearty cheers broke from all on board the Madras, as, after pouring in a broadside at a distance of fifty yards, she left the brig behind her and proceeded on her way. "'Then you don't care about taking prizes, Captain?' one of the passengers said, as they crowded round to congratulate him upon his easy, almost bloodless victory. "'No, taking prizes is not my business, and were I to weaken my crew by sending some of them off in a prize, I might find myself short-handed if we met another of these gentlemen, or fell in with bad weather. Besides, she'd not be worth sending home.' 
"'The brig is signalling to her consort, sir,' Mr. Green said. "'Aye, aye. I expect she wants help badly enough. I saw the ships fly close to her water-line as we gave her that last broadside. "'They are lowering a boat,' one of the passengers said. "'So they are. I expect they haven't got more than one that can swim.' Well, I think she's settling down, the captain said as he looked earnestly at the wreck astern. See how they're crowding into that boat, and how some of the others are cutting and slashing to get the wreckage clear of her? Oh, she's certainly a good bit lower in the water than she was, the first officer agreed. The schooner's come around, and won't be long before she's alongside of her. Yes, there was no doubt that the brig was settling down fast. Men stood on the bulwarks and waved their caps frantically to the schooner. Others could be seen, by the aid of a glass, casting spars, hen-coops, and other articles overboard and jumping into the water after them, and soon the sea around the wreck was dotted with heads and floating fragments, while the wreckage of the mainmast was clustered with men. When the Madras was about a mile away, the schooner was lying thrown up head to wind, fifty yards from the brig, and her boats were already engaged in picking up the swimmers. Suddenly the brig gave a heavy lurch. "'There she goes!' the captain exclaimed. A moment later the hull had disappeared, and the schooner remained alone." By this time the whole of the ladies has ascended from their place of safety to the poop, and a general exclamation broke from the passengers as the brig disappeared. The schooner will pick them all up, the captain said. They must have suffered heavily from our fire, but I don't think any will have gone down with them. The boat which has already reached the schooner must have taken a good many, and the mainmast and fore topmast and spars will support the rest, to say nothing of the things they have thrown overboard. Well, there is one wasp the less afloat. No further adventure was met with throughout the voyage. They had a spell of bad weather off the Cape, but the captain said it was nothing to the gales they often encountered there, and that the voyage as a whole was an exceptionally good one, for even after the delays they had encountered at the start, the passage had lasted but four months and a half. They touched at Point de Galle for news, and to ascertain whether any French warships had been seen of late along the coast. A supply of fresh vegetables and fruit was taken on board, as the vessel, after touching at Madras, was to go on to Calcutta. A few of the passengers landed at Point de Galle, but neither Dick nor his mother went ashore. "'You will have plenty of opportunities of seeing Indians later on, Dick,' Mrs. Holland had said, "'and as the gigs will not take all ashore, we may as well stop quietly here. I heard the captain say that he'd weigh anchor again in four hours.' Dick was rather disappointed, but, as they would be at Madras before long, he did not much mind. Ten days later they anchored off that town, Little was to be seen except the fort, a number of warehouses, and the native town, while the scenery contrasted strongly with that of Ceylon, with its masses of green foliage with hills rising behind. For the last fortnight Mrs. Holland had been somewhat depressed. Now that the voyage was nearly over, the difficulties of the task before her seemed greater than they had done when viewed from a distance, and she asked herself whether, after all, it would not have been wiser to have waited another two or three years until Dick had attained greater strength and manhood. The boy, however, when she confided her doubts to him, laughed at the idea. "'Why, you know, mother,' he said, "'we agreed that I had a much greater chance as a boy of going about unsuspected than I should have as a man. Besides, we could not, never have left father remain any longer without trying to get him out.' "'No, no, mother, you know we've gone through it over and over again, and talked about every chance. We've had a first-rate voyage, and everything is going on just as we could have wished.' and it would never do to begin to have doubts again. We have both felt confident all along. It seems to me that, of all things, we must keep on being confident, at any rate until there is something to give us cause to doubt. On the following morning they landed in a surf-boat, and were fortunate in getting ashore without being drenched. There was a rush of wild-looking and half-naked natives to seize their baggage, but upon Mrs. Holland, with quiet decision, 
accosting the men in their own language, and picking out four of them to carry the baggage up to one of the vehicles standing on the road that ran along the top of the high beach, the rest fell back, and the matter was arranged without difficulty. After a drive of twenty minutes they stopped at a hotel. It, "'It's not like a hotel, mother,' Dick remarked as they drew up. "'It's more like a gentleman's house standing in its own park. Almost all the European houses are built so here, Dick, and it's much more pleasant than when they are packed together. Yet much nicer,' Dick agreed. If each house has a lot of ground like this, the place must cover a tremendous extent of country. It does, Dick, but as everyone keeps horses and carriages, that does not matter much. Blacktown, as they call the native town, stands quite apart from the European quarter. As soon as they were settled in their rooms, which seemed to Dick singularly bare and unfurnished, mother and son went out for a drive in one of the carriages belonging to the hotel. Dick had learned so much about India from her that, although extremely interested, he was scarcely surprised at the various scenes that met his eye, or at the bright and varied costumes of the natives. Many changes had taken place during the seventeen years that had elapsed since Mrs. Holland had left India. The town had increased greatly in size. All signs of the effects of the siege by the French thirty years before had been long obliterated. Large and handsome government buildings had been erected, and the evidences of wealth and prosperity were everywhere present. End of chapter 2 Recording by Mike Harris